you've got to hire first class people to give first class service and you need to be able to afford that. And, and this is also a tough business that you need to make money being in this business. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have my guys, Matthew Whitaker and Duke Dodson in the house. Guys, thanks for coming on. Uh, we're glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. It's been an absolute minute, and I'm really excited to do catch up. I, I published via delay not that long ago an interview with you that was prior to a significant life event for both of you guys, a joining up of the A-team here, a merging and melding of the minds to build something. We don't know what. We're going to find out. We're going to unpack. Let's start here. Evernest, as it stands today, for those that don't know, give me some basic stats, headcount, markets, door count. Give me some details. Yeah, I'll jump in here. Uh, so Evernest today is about 375 team members, and we're in 25 different markets, 17 states, and manage about 13,000 homes. Uh, we also manage about uh, 20,000, 21,000 HOA doors. Um, and have a pretty robust brokerage business, which we got into last year. So, um, you know, really focused on becoming a full service business, a full service platform for investors. And um, that was one of the reasons Duke and I decided to join forces is we see a, an interesting future in the property management business. And I don't think it's a big secret that there is some consolidation going on in the industry. And so uh, we just wanted to be kind of at the forefront of that. So these are some eye-popping numbers that are, are peaking as a result of, in part, the acquisition. Let's unwind. Let's go back. How did you guys first meet each other? At a normal conference. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I used to speak at a lot of them, and Matthew did too, and we met and hit it all. You know, we met in like a curiosity kind of way, like, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? And it led to going to dinner, and then it led to going to dinner every time, and then it ultimately led to a mastermind group that we were yeah, we very much dated before we got married. <laughs> and we probably knew each other five years. And uh, one of the things that you will see is uh, you start to have relationships with people that are in very similar situations with you when you come to these conferences. And so Duke and I were on a very similar trajectory. We had both started the business at about the same time, had a very similar story. And so it just, we, we really hit it off. And um, us having consistent conversations about how are you handling this because we were going through the same pain points at the same time. And so it just made a lot of sense for us to kind of like formalize the relationship through our masterminds and then even got more formal when we decided to merge the two businesses together. And what were the precursors to that? You're both ambitious, doing interesting things. There was no need for it. It kept going as was. What made sense to go through this marriage process? I mean, for us, uh, the timing worked out really well for a lot of reasons lining up. Obviously, Matthew mentioned consolidations going on in the industry. And so for the last five years, you know, Matthew's been buying companies, we've been buying companies, been watching other folks you know, attack acquisition in a myriad of different ways, right? Private equity, venture capital, uh, you know, mom and pop, kind of you know, putting deals together that way. Um, for us, the timing made, we, we, and we've talked about several iterations of this for three plus years, you know, several of us get together. It's been on the table. Together. Yeah, like not, we never went down the path far, but we talked about it several, several you know, several different ways. Um, so this year it made sense, um, you know, the size that Everness was and the size that we were, uh, us plus them um, put us at a pretty good size where it made us a little more um, attractive to the equity and debt markets. And, um, you know, Matthew wanted to get an HOA, we had an HOA division. Um, you know, for me, I was, um, you know, my company was seven divisions and you could argue I was distracted by seven different things, whereas Matthew had his head down on most of them just like single fam. Um, and so I started thinking about the future of all of our divisions and, you know, putting our divisions with the best kind of team for the next 10 years for the company's sake, for the employee's sake. And uh, so personally, um, I thought it made sense to work with Matthew and Evernest because the single family and HOA division would be really good hands. 
you know what I mean, for the next 10 years. And I want to be part of it, but I'm also doing real estate development and other things, as you know. And so it just the stars aligned this year made a lot of sense. And I think the timing is really, really uh, positive for us. And how many of those seven divisions joined at past? Uh, three. So single family, what we call tweener, which is uh, like small boutique multifamily, like multi multifamily that's not large enough to have on-site staff, and then the HOA division. And the other divisions? Uh, multifamily, at the same time, we actually merged with Atrium down in Orlando. Mike Shout out to Mike and Adam. Mike and Adam, yep. And then so what we kept at the Dotson Companies is real estate development, uh, commercial, and uh, short-term rentals. So the opportunity that you guys are seeing and what you're going after, what's interesting is that I first remember really getting to know you in a webinar many, many years ago where this 25,000 figure came out. It was eye-popping and you weren't that well-known. I didn't know you that well. And that's what's exciting about Visionary. I didn't know if you were delusional. I don't know if you had read this in a book and were just throwing darts with the number. And now, relative to where you're at, 25,000 is probably not that interesting, right? It's just presumably with inertia, you're inevitably going to get there. When you think about uh, being a visionary, taking a risk, putting yourself out there, what did that feel like early on to make that bet in a kind of naked position? You're kind of putting your fanny in the wind here, and here we are. Talk to me about like that, that process and that journey of what it's like when you're really early with it. Yeah, that's a great question uh, because I think about this a lot, and uh, I didn't know if I was delusional either. I, frankly, uh, I was selling the vision prior to. Uh, we have a great uh, team member named Gray Hall, and I was telling him, you know, we're going to be a national property management business. We're going to manage twenty five thousand homes. But when I was selling that vision to him, I don't know if I fully believed it myself. And I actually uh, put this out on LinkedIn yesterday because I was listening to a podcast and it just made me think. But you know, if I didn't say it and I didn't commit to it, I have a hundred percent chance of not hitting it. And although I might not hit it, uh, you know, might not hit the 25,000, if I committed to it, there was at least a chance. And so I decided to go with that chance of it happening. And it seems to have paid off because I was able to sell the vision to enough people, find enough great team members that have joined the team. And they started to buy into the into the vision and started to believe the vision and you're right. Like today, it seems almost, even though we just crossed kind of halfway, it almost seems like a foregone conclusion that we're going to reach that, reach that. And I don't want people to think that we're letting up. I mean, we're grinding every day behind closed doors, trying to uh, continue to grow the business and be thoughtful about it. But you're right. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the flywheel is moving and things are happening at a rate that's way faster than we ever thought was possible. And so we've got some more exciting things that are even going to happen before the end of the year. And, um, and it seems like we, there's, there's a great chance we could hit that 25,000 house goal one year early next year. And how many units were you managing when you said the 25,000 unit goal? It was 250 homes. I thought it was like 700, which is still crazy. 250, that's wild. 1%. 1%. Yeah. And I remember where I was. We were in a, we were at a NARPROM. It was either a regional or a state conference in Atlanta. And it was me and two other guys. One was Matt Lavelle. And we were just sitting in a hotel room. And it was, you know, it was it was a little bit of Goldilocks. Like, what's not too big? What's not too small? 25,000 feels just right. And I'd say that's where there were, there's no magic to the number. Like, it's, it's obviously created magic. But there was no magic to the number. Like, maybe we should have said 30,000. Maybe we should have said 100,000 and we'd be way ahead. But 25,000, we set the goal, and so far, so good. 100x seems like a reasonable <laughs> to peg it at. You know well, you know how hard this for 250 were to get, right? And just the fun, I can you know, do a lot more. Like, it, it's, it's just great. Yeah. What's really funny is we thought it was going to be very linear. So if you go back and look at some of our, like, planning sessions, you would see we had 1,200 this year, 1,200 the next year. You know, it was very much a, like, linear path. And what we have found is very, you know, Jim Collins talks about how uh, most great companies will grind for six or seven years, and then all of a sudden the flywheel really tame mm. off, mm. and they'll, they'll you'll see exponential growth. And I can literally show you. Um, now, when you zoomed in, we were growing, but when you zoom out now and you see the exponential growth, like the tail end of this, uh, and you kind of see it just in the numbers. Um, it took us, it took me six years to get to 250 homes. And the first six weeks of this year, we added 250 net homes to the business. 
And and that's that's organic, like no no that that isn't inorganic growth through acquisition. And like right now, it's just like homes are every day, twenty or thirty houses are hitting the. Uh, and we have we look at it on a daily basis, and so it's just uh, you know all that. And this is kind of a message for everybody out there. You know, keep grinding, and at some point you'll get the benefit of all the grinding you did. Like right now, when you're out there like starting your business or growing your business, you're feeling like, hey, you know, I'm never going to get there. Is this everything ever going to take off? And you're working harder than the returns are coming in. And what I found is that at some point you hit an inflection point and I'm not working as hard as the returns that I'm getting right now. And so that's the value in in growing a business like that. Intensely and deeply relatable. Part of the function of what you guys are providing is being a role model and giving permission to say what is possible. The thing about the grind is that it is indistinguishable early on. Success and failure look the same. You don't know if there's going to be a hockey stick. In fact, a hockey stick is kind of the term that defines delusional thinking on some level. About to hockey stick, about to hockey stick, maybe, maybe not. The opportunity that you're working is more determinative than how hard you are working. The boat that you're in is more determinative than how hard you're rowing. And you guys are proving something big, something significant can be done here. But I want to hone in on how you've done it. I want to hone in on the type of species that you are in the animal kingdom, per se, as it relates to how we get here. There's a lot of, there's money coming in and and doing this much quicker. Not to diminish what you guys have done, but let's be real. There's a lot of money that's coming in. And that's fairly obvious, right? If you're an Uber, if you're a Lyft, we've proven you can dump $100 billion on any market, get scale quickly. What it does to consumers, the weird subsidy, aftermarket effects, that still is playing out. But the way that you guys have done it and this flywheel that you're describing is in part described by a long period of bootstrapping. I want to park on bootstrapping. That's my background. It's what grounds me and keeps me connected to SMB. I don't moralize about it. I have no objections or, or problems with fundraising, but so much of my career has looked like that. And it has a unique ethos. It makes you scrappy, not as an ideal or as a virtue, because there's a gun to your head and there's no money in your bank account and you're trying to figure shit out. For you guys, when you think about what that put in your DNA, that bootstrapper background, talk to me about, about what that means to you and how it shaped your careers. Um, yeah, I mean, the... I, I don't, I'm not sure I ever want to go back to the first five years, first six years that he was talking about, but it's probably like the my favorite. It'll probably be my favorite part of the whole thing, looking at it in retrospect, like because it's so hard. You grind so hard, and the whole adage about like burning the ships, right? When you like when failure is not an option, you just will do anything to make it work. And like I think it, what, what from the DNA, it just it, it makes it toughens you, uh, and you are certainly problems oriented. Solving problem solving is the is the thing. You just wake up every day like. What's broken? How do you fix it? What's broken? How do you fix it? What's broken? How do you fix it? And, and you you kind of quit thinking about um, what if it doesn't work. You just you just really live in the how how am I going to make this work? How am I going to survive? And uh, yeah, I am glad I did it that way too. And like did, you know, like I was broke for seven eight years. You know, what I mean, living paycheck to paycheck, payroll to payroll for seven eight years. Uh, and I, I wouldn't trade that experience or anything. Mm. Yeah, Sam Walton's one of my favorite uh, entrepreneurs for this very reason. If anybody hadn't read his book, Made in America. You turned me on to that. It's amazing. It's it's literally one of the best business books written because he really digs into the grind. And talk about somebody that their whole career, even when they were a billion plus dollar business, he was still a grinder. And I think that's what uh, separates uh, kind of that first six or seven years and the, the founders that bootstrap is that ability to grind. And I don't think that'll ever come out of Duke and I, right? Like we still are grinding. We're still afraid that things are going to fall down and break, even when they're probably not, right? Like we're we're probably to a point where the, the tree's grown enough that nobody could step on it or tear it down really easily. And But we still have that fear and call it the productive paranoia of, being afraid that at some point somebody's going to pull the Jenga piece that the whole thing's going to come crumbling down. Mm-hmm. I think that's what separates uh, the grinders and the founders. You know, one of the things that I've also seen is um, that when you started the business and you bootstrapped it and grown it, uh, and that was one of the great things about our marriage, so to speak, was 
both of our businesses had a soul. And when you start, when you, when you have like one house you're managing, or we started with 30 and Duke started with about that many of his own, like, you know, you intimately know every piece of the business, right? Like I know what it's like to get a mad owner phone call. I know what it's like to have a tenant show up at the door and can't get in a house and, or go show a house. And then the tenant that you you drive across town on a Saturday, leave your family and the tenant doesn't show up. Like I know all that. So it, 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 it creates soul of the business. And I think that carries a long way. And when you have a lot of money just being dumped into a space from, you know, from the, uh, from, you know, one of the, the, you know, from San Francisco or New York, it's really hard for them to understand that, you know, this business has a soul. And just to loop it back to Sam Walton, you know, maybe it's different today, but if you read that book, it was very clear that Walmart has soul and took on the personality of Sam. And, you know, what that's kind of the business that Duke and I want to build is the operator's business, the people that have been boots on the ground. And yeah, we're starting to write our own technology, uh, some basic stuff. But one of the things we're doing is like, because we deeply understand the business, uh, you know, how this, these properties get managed, um, you know, we're going to we're gonna be operators first and then write the tech to, to meet that. If you're really in the trenches and that's where use case awareness should come from. Let's talk a little bit about some of these other animals in the kingdom per se. Let's talk about the, the tech service hybrid. What do we know now? We're past the very early days. I remember when the first ones came on the street, I was interested. I said, hey, come in, let's have that conversation. It feels useful. Rather than being dismissive, let's see what we can learn, take the best from it and move accordingly. Those first couple waves have gone by. There's some corpses along the way. There's still plenty of players in the market. So there's a lot left to be learned, but certainly we've learned something. There are some things that are known. What do you feel like we do and don't know about how this broad thesis is going to play out? Uh, like in, when we're recording this, what it feels like is those tech-enabled businesses, because a lot of them have their roots in institutional dollars and institutional home ownership. They are pivoting and focused on that because they see that as the clear path to getting to scale, right? And maybe they're going to come back and play a big part in the in the retail investor space. But you know, I've seen anywhere from ten to fifteen percent of all the the realms in America will be owned by institutions. I've seen some estimates as high as 40%. The point is that today when we're recording this, it's still 3%. So it's still going to be a big, um, big piece over the overall management of, um, of rental homes it is the institution uh, piece. So, you know, they're all pivoting and focusing on that institutional side of the business. And we, you know, those are, you know, your audience and, and our audience uh, being the retail investor, that's still going to be 60 to 80% of the business, maybe, maybe as much as 90% of the business. So um, I still think for, for, for the boutique property manager or even somebody that wants to grow a, a regional retail focused uh, investor brand, there's going to be tons of opportunity. Like these, these tech enabled uh, service businesses have not replaced um, the property manager. Um, now they will be able to, and we think we'll be able to, offer services that a lot of, uh, that a boutique manager can't, but the boutique manager can also offer services that we can't. And so there's always gonna be a place for that boutique manager. Somebody that manages two to 400 homes is what I consider like a boutique manager. Duke, if you were speaking in defense of this thesis, what do you think is the value add? You mentioned some services that they offered. Other people would say price compression will be the ultimate delivery on the promise of what these players are able to provide. What is the most charitable viewpoint or commentary that you would have about what these uh, outside players are attempting to do as they come into this market? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I guess I agree with what Matthew just said and what he said earlier about uh, who's building the software, who's building this experience, and have they ever done it before? They've talked to the tenant, they've talked to the to the homeowner, and do they truly understand the pain points and understand what you can automate, what you can't, and uh, what still needs the human touch? Um, for the most part, I think there'll be some success there, but uh, but it will be a better 
you'll work better if the person writing writing that customer experience has, has actually felt those pain points. Um, so I think it can be done, and um, I think you know, maybe price ultimately be the reason why you know it works. But um, yeah, I, I I would like to answer again in three years. <laughs> I like to wait and see what actually happens. Yeah. I I see a future though where. You know, what, what it's it's pretty obvious, and I think a lot of people that are probably listening to the show have the experience of out of town investors coming and investing in their market. And you know, we still consider those retail investors as long as they don't hit 100 homes. And they are asking for a lot of introduction, a lot of different services because they have no local no local contacts on the ground. And so one of the things that these scale players can provide is a full suite of services for that one investor, essentially one-stop shopping. The reason that prices could get compressed, and I'm not saying that they will, um, but it would make sense is when somebody starts really understanding the lifetime value of one of those customers coming in, let's say I'm in Birmingham, I have a California investor, and he or she is gonna buy a home in Birmingham. And I can offer them everything from brokerage services to title closing services to insurance to mortgage to renovation to property management. And if property management needs to be a loss leader to get all those other services on the platform, well, that's where things like price compression would take place on the property management services. What I have seen and what I believe right now is people don't understand what the lifetime value of a customer is. We have some pretty good ideas of what that looks like at scale and everybody's guessing. But one of my old partners used to say, one thing about performance is always wrong. It's a wag. And, uh, but the, that's where, that's where they're going to be able to offer, uh, drive down the cost of management uh, from a property manager. And so the big case comes around, you know, who can manage and then justify their fees. Um, in other words, if you, it, it's cheaper for you to have me manage it because I can justify my fees. So. For instance, if I have an insurance company, I know some of this is being offered in the industry right now, but if I have an insurance company and I'm insuring, let's say we get 25,000 homes and I'm insuring 25,000 homes and the one person that goes out and buys insurance one time, that insurance company has to, you know, number one, account for their risk, but also make as much money as they can off of that one customer that one time versus insuring 25,000 homes. Let's say I that you know, that insurance bill went from 1500 down to 1200 Well, now all of a sudden my property management fee doesn't look quite as expensive because I've driven down the cost $300, right? Like, you know, in some markets that may be two months worth of management fee. So all of a sudden it's becoming more interesting to have a scaled player manage my home than it is for, um, for a boutique owner because I've, that's like direct money out of my mm -hmm. pocket. Now, the case could also be made that the boutique owner understands the repairs, gets cheaper repairs done. And that 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 is the case today. But the big question becomes like once all this data gets aggregated and people start to understand, you know, I see a world where, uh, you know, a refrigerator breaks, breaks down. And uh, we know because we have all the data on that refrigerator, what is the what are the percentage chances that that refrigerator is going to break down again in two years? And then a new property manager. See, one of the great things about a boutique property manager is they have a lot of reps. And so they can look at a refrigerator and just intuitively know, I need to replace that refrigerator. Well, the new property manager, the challenge is they don't have those reps. And so that's where data is going to solve that. And so an owner calls in or excuse me, a, a resident calls in or submits a work order. And all of a sudden it's an easy conversation with the owner. You know, you can, you can roll the dice and you know, there's a 20% chance this refrigerator is going to last another two years, or we can go ahead and replace it, and we know it's going to last another 10 to 12 years uh, with a 90% chance of success. Those are the types of conversations in three to five years that are going to be going on because all this data is going to get aggregated, and we're going to have predictable um, outcomes. And that's one of the challenges that a boutique manager is going to have is – is their mental models. They've created these mental models over 20 years of property management, but data can also replace some of those mental models. That's the idea. That's the premise. And we're constantly figuring out to what extent and what the timeline is of when that will be delivered. One of the challenges for the more 
intellectual entrepreneur is to understand when a free market premise that is broadly on a long enough time horizon true, when incidentally on the timeline, it's going to happen. This is one of the challenges of being a free market guy, of being more Austrian minded. I have sensibilities about the market, about the role of the Fed, et cetera. But when you look at the track record of economists who have become fund managers with these sensibilities, it's poor. It's piss poor, frankly, because they're constantly predicting that the Fed is about to crash the market. Gold bug is going to happen. The gold bugs are, are perpetually thinking that gold is about to spike and it just doesn't happen. The point that I'm making here is that we don't know the timeline of these things, of these things that are going to occur. And my sensibilities is that the smaller the player, the harder they are to disrupt. There is no Valley-backed startup that is going to disrupt uh, frontline maintenance. That's going to make a guy swinging a hammer go away. Never going to happen. That guy is always going to be there. Localized, small boutique managers are always going to be there. Questions emerge around that middle tier player. Will it be more competitive? Price compression, obviously, that would be a, a very difficult thing to deal with. We've seen that momentarily. We haven't seen that sustained yet. Time will tell. Let's pivot back into the merger. Let's talk about merging company cultures. The bigger an organization gets, the harder it is to push any idea, good or bad, down to the front lines. I was recently at the Appfolio User Summit, and I had the pleasure of talking to some of their staff. I was interacting with some of the C-suite there. And at the same time, it's a big enough event, also talking to some of the frontline staff. And not because it's anything unique to that company, but just because I had the exposure at that event, it really struck me <laughs> to meditate on the challenges that exist as a leader to push information down, even when you're really sincere with it. For you guys, you're merging these companies. People don't know exactly what's happening. You have your narrative, your story, you have your trust with your team, but they don't know exactly what this means, where it's going to go, redundancies, am I being fired? Not even the whole company is coming with. Walk me through some of the challenges and the complexity of making that merger tight and effective. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so Matthew had, you know, we, at the time of the merger, Matthew was already in 15 plus almost 20 markets. We were in five, but for the most of our lifespan, we were in one, you know, we were basically a Richmond based company, a local company. So we went from one to five markets and we were just learning how to communicate to our folks in the, in the other markets. But Matthew had been doing it for years. So he, he was just farther, more advanced in systems of um, communication with remote teams, uh, uh, you know, culture infusion, you know, through, through the whole team. Um, and so that really helps Evernest when they acquire companies, because they've been doing this for years, uh, communicating with new people and, you know, getting them the culture infused. So that's one thing I've learned from Matthew and Evernest is how to do that because uh, they do it a lot better than we did. We were just learning there. They were just had been doing it for years. Um, so, you know, two cultures, especially if you have, you know, we had 160 employees before the merger. Matthew had more than that. It, like two, Matthew and I are alike in a lot of ways, but our cultures are not exactly the same. No two companies are exactly the same, right? So you're going to have some of those cultural changes. And I think um, for the most part, uh, we were alike enough where it wasn't like a radically different mm -hmm. uh, regime. <laughs> like our people didn't feel that way. They've, they've definitely felt differences. And for the most part, it's been positive and they've liked it. Some don't, but a lot of them do. Um, and so I don't think you're ever going to get the, it, it's hard. Like I would, I would tell a lot of people when the company, two large companies coming together, it's going to be hard. That piece, the culture piece is going to be challenging. Um, but so far so good on our, on our thing. Um, I think the, the best way is like Matthew and Everness, they have things they believe in and they have systems they believe in and they communicate these things often. And um, the best part of our merger was the communication from Everness to the new Dotson folks that were coming in like before, during and after. To me, that's been the best part is watching the Everness team communicate, build relationships with our people. Mm. And that ultimately is why it's worked. Duke is being very kind here. <laughs> I'm done. Um, that was on. That was true. Yeah, you know, uh, we have dropped some balls with the merger. Um, we have we've had challenges. There are people that are not happy, uh, and rightfully so. Right? We did a poor job in some places. Uh, they didn't know where their limits were, and we could have done a better job of communicating. But one of the things that we have a culture of is right. We're going to learn. We're going to keep grinding through it. We're going to get better. And then we're going to make sure it doesn't happen next time. 
And that's, you know, for anybody who's going to be successful, there's going to be times where things are not going right. And, th- and listen, there's, again, Duke's being very nice about this, but there's things that are not going right right now in the dodson Everness merger world. But we know we know what the end looks like. And so we have faith that we're going to get there from a, uh, you know, from a uh, execution and like where this thing ends up. And that's going to, that's going to absolutely happen. But anytime you merge two different businesses together, it is an absolute challenge. And you have people that have been doing it one way for a long time and asking them to do it a little bit different. And so it's just, you know, it's just the natural friction. But one of the things, and Duke kind of hinted on this, you know, one of the things I believe is that. When you're communicating with your team, you are the the I don't even forget what they call them, but the caller in the rowboat, right? Like the mm-hmm. the um, you know somebody that's basically calling out the rhythm of the organization. And right now, like we're better, um, all of our oars are starting to get into the water at the same time, and we're kind of on the backside of of this integration. But there's still some collateral damage, and we're going to have to like focus on getting that, you know, uh, getting that shored up. But as the leader of the organization, it's my job to be that caller and say, you know, this is the rhythm of the organization. This is how we're going to do this. Um, we're going to provide the framework of the rhythm, and then your responsibility is to make great decisions as good as you know how within the freedom of that framework. And so I think we have done a good job of putting that framework in place and communicating it. And just anytime you join two things together, there's some friction. And, you know, what's going to be exciting is I think by the end of the year, all our oars will be going in the same direction. And then it's going to be, you know, lights out from there. So when you think about some of the other leadership components of, of what you're doing and how you're growing as people, what I know to be true, what I take as a first order principle is that where I am at as a leader and what's going on up here is the externalization of the business. It's easy to feel that the mechanics of it, of the market, the product, all of this minutia that I'm focused on is what's driving or hindering my success. But over time, I've just come to completely accept that it's my growth as a leader, my ability to project vision, my ability to attract talent, that's what is driving the business. Not these other mechanical factors can be solved. And if they can't, I could go pick another market and build something else there. If you think about your own evolution as leaders, as the heads and the the faces and the brains behind these organizations, and really the heart and the soul as well, what comes to mind for you as some specific moments that were inflection points in your own personal leadership? Yeah, my my thing would be um, the thing I keep repeating is like I'm not the smartest person here. I just got here first, and it is amazing when you hire somebody. And the way I look at it, the framework I look at it is, if you hire somebody that intimidates you a little bit, like you're kind of embarrassed to bring them into your organization because you think they're just going to look around and be like, See "Oh my broken. god, I started." You know, what am I doing? It's funny, we were literally had a meeting this week with a guy. I mean, he's like super smart. He works at like this big company that everybody would know. Uh, He went to Dartmouth. And I'm like, I went to Alabama, right? Like this guy is considering coming to work for this guy that went to Alabama. And what I have found is that those people can come into your organization and they don't like come down to your level those people have an unbelievable ability to pull mm. you up to their mm. level. And so a perfect example would be our new CFO who's been there five months. And, you know, he has a Goldman background. He worked in private equity. He's lived all over the world. Like literally I was intimidated the first time I met him and just kind of, I had my sales hat on, but I was like, what if I actually sell him and he actually mm-hmm. does come? Like, is he going to be like disappointed when he gets here? And he, and he came and it's been one of the greatest things because it's, you know, he has different conversations than Duke and I started having when we first got into the business. And he's been in a world that, you know, frankly, Everness needed access to. And so it's like he has come in and really pulled the business up. Um, and since the, and he came in like just on the, the, the start of the Dodson merger and since then, it's like 
because this merger happened. And so now we're getting into a different like number of homes, revenue world. And because he's here, all of a sudden the conversations have become exponentially different. And, you know, my advice to people is hire people that intimidate you. That is a good thing for your business. And what's interesting, again, I was with this person, I had, I had Stan in the room, I had this person in the room, uh, you know, Ivy League. I only understood about 90% of the conversation, but about six months ago, I would have only understood 60% of the conversation. And so what's great as a leader is when you get in, just like Tim Ferriss says, immerse yourself in a new language, you know, go live in a different country and immerse yourself in a new language. The last six months I've immersed myself in this new language and now I'm starting to actually speak it and repeat it and understand it. And so it's been great because I went out and hired people that intimidate me. It's made me a better leader. It's made mm. me understand more things that'll be valuable to Everness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, as far as inflection points, I think you have a lot of them as the leader. Like when you start as a one-person organization, like you're literally like for us, for example, we were we first had to learn how to be a property manager, right? And you do that for a while. Like, okay, now I need to learn how to be someone who hires people and manage a team of three. I had to learn how to do that. Right. And then, okay, now I need to, I need to take that next step. And I mean, I used to just set these like personal goals each year. Like I would look at what skills do I need for the next five years that I don't have? Let's pick one this year and let's just focus on like public speaking. Right. I was a horrible public speaker, terrified of it. And so I set a goal to do that. And so I made myself speak publicly five times that year. Cause I, I knew if I set the appointment, I would have to get figured out. It. Yeah. So like each year, like I remember like Mark Zuckerberg used to set some crazy goal each year, like learn Chinese, you know, mm-hmm. like only he would set a goal. I'm only going to eat meat that I personally could just these weird goals, but those aren't my goals, but I but I just like the idea of setting this like one big goal each year, and then you know working towards that thing. Um, and then, but like that's one of the hardest things to do. When Matthew is doing is just very challenging. It's like going from like you know managing hundred people to three hundred, and then next year it might be five hundred or a thousand. And like you have to consistently reinvent yourself each year uh, to get better and better at certain things, or like the organization will pass you, or or you'll stall. You know, you just. Uh, no, nobody was born with all those skills. So you have to, some of them, some of them you were born mm-hmm. with and the rest you have to work at. How do you guys think about managing the compulsiveness that drives us on as entrepreneurs? I feel like saying compulsive sounds like, you know, oh, that's weird. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't <laughs> want to own, I, I own being compulsive. <laughs> There's some manicness that gives me some highs. There's some manic manicness that can keep me up and keep me grinding well beyond the point of, of what is actually useful. And that's just my compulsiveness kind of torturing me on some level. So a lot of utility, a lot of downside. I'm a family man. I have three girls. They matter to me infinitely more than my business outcomes. And yet I spend more time at work than I do with my family. Not because I have some kind of a disorder. It's just the nature of, you know, working 50, 60 hours a week. How do you guys manage this dichotomy? For me, I, I, I'm, pretty vocal that I'm a big reader and love to read biographies, love to read autobiographies. I, what, one of the things I've found is that I need a daily dose of objectivity and reality. And if I get that daily dose, then that in little bits over years helps to change the way I act and the way I think. And I start to see the world through the um, through the eyes of the imminent dead, as Charlie Munger would call it, right? Like there's people that have gone before us and built these businesses and uh, and tamed that impulse impulsive nature in most of us entrepreneurs. And they've learned to become somebody different. And, and that's kind of like the one of one of my messages to this whole industry is like if you want to grow the business, you it's no longer about how well you manage properties. Uh, you know, Duke and I are long past our ability to have an effect by how good of a, a property manager we are. It becomes more of like people management. And to do that, it takes a completely different skill set that you have to learn. But the great thing out is, you know, there's plenty of people that have done it before you and you can go learn from them. And so that's why I'm a big believer in reading and biographies and studying. You know, we have a, you have a strategic advantage if you know more than your competitors. And so if you will uh, dig in and learn more, then you you'll you'll and you're willing to put in the hard work and you're you should over long periods of time uh, win those. 
battles. I, I hear the compulsiveness coming through even in your answer. The answer is more reading. Oh, God, thank you, Matthew. More reading. Bro, I crush 50 books a year. Like, that's not quite the answer that I was that I was looking for. I mean, it's yeah. really the, staring in the dark soul of the night and asking yourself, how much is going to be enough for me to be for me to be okay? And if I feel okay with myself, am I going to get soft? Am I going to lose my edge? God forbid, my worst fear. But at some point, you have to just, it has to be okay. It has to be, whew, it has to be okay to be me, man. Not on the basis of this thing I'm going to achieve at some point in the future. You feel me? Oh, yeah. I mean, like the your, the compulsive thing, like uh, I used to think it um, was my superpower, right? Like that's the reason I'm successful. And then I started thinking, maybe, maybe this is the thing that's also going to kill me. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, you like when yoga and meditation and wellness started becoming a thing, I was, I like read a bunch about all that. Just like, is that the, is that the way to like, to keep your superpower, but harness it in a way that it's not detrimental to your health and your rest of your life. And there's no like perfect answer, but I think, um, it's constantly looking at like your schedule, like your, your, like your sleep, your, your exercise and nutrition, your, your daily pace. And do you feel good at the end of the day? Are you exhausted? Do you feel like, are you having anxiety in your chest? Like, and, and just and being mm. cognizant of it all. And then setting little rules for yourself to, to not let yourself go towards the negative side of the compulsion. Um, like I used to, for the first three years, if something happened on a Tuesday wrong in the business, I couldn't sleep Tuesday night and up all night at four in the morning. The next day I'm at the office rewriting a process mm-hmm. to fix that one things. So I couldn't even, I couldn't even comprehend that that could might, I didn't want that to ever happen again. I thought, I thought I was going to die if that ever happened again. Now, in a way that was very good for the business because it got broke. It was broken Tuesday. It got fixed Wednesday, team trained on Thursday. That thing is fixed, right? But ultimately something else will break on Thursday. Mm. And are you going to let that ruin your life? You know, you can't, so I set little rules for myself. Like I wouldn't check my email after dinner time because I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. You know what I mean? And then I would, if I woke up, I set little rules where if, I would sometimes I wake up at two thirty or three in the morning and I would go into the office and then mm. I felt that wasn't a healthy pace. And so I said, like, you can't not get out of bed before four thirty AM. You just, you have to just stay there till four, you know, little, little things like that. And ultimately that helped me build a life that where I wasn't going to have a heart attack by age 40, but I could still be successful. If that makes sense. My thing was Fridays, not having critical meetings on Fridays. Cause then my whole weekend would get, I would just be focused on it the entire weekend. Before that I had a thing where I enjoyed working all night on a on a Saturday because that meant that on a Sunday I could go to bed at around uh, two p.m. and sleep for like sixteen hours and then come <laughs> Say up that out loud again. Just what you <laughs> and then <laughs> is and that then, normal? <laughs> and then wake up at like a four a.m. on a Monday. Now this was this was early on in my career, but yeah, I mean the stuff you put yourself through, yeah. it's it's kind of wild. I, I still wake up almost every night in the middle of the night. I still do. I, I'm thinking about I, problems. Thinking about problems. I, I did it last night. Um, and I, the problem is very fresh on my mind what it was. I, I think that that is now look in 2019 Duke can tell you I was a mess. I was, oh, story. Like, yeah. I was, I was stressed. Um, like, you know, cash flow and, uh, the business was growing and it tripled in size in 2019. Hair was falling out of your face. Literally, I was gonna say I didn't want to put it, the word out, put the words. Literally, in your mouth. hair was falling out of my face. Yeah. Uh, it was stress-induced alopecia. So, I, I know what it's like to go through that. Now, I'm way past that, right? But I'm still not past the anxiety of waking up in the middle of the night trying to solve a problem. And I think that is just the, you know, for us to be who we are. I think that's just something. That's just something I'm going to have to manage as long as I'm willing to do this. Mm-hmm. And look, I, you know, frankly, it's way past. Yeah, we set the vision to go to twenty five thousand, but if you'd have talked to me ten years ago and I could have said, "Hey, I could have built up this much equity or whatever," you know, whatever, whatever you perceive as value, like we're way past oh, that. Yeah, and and so for me, it is the the I really have embraced the thrill of the chase. Mm. And uh, I don't want to be the dog that catches the bumper, right? Because then what do you do once you catch the bumper? And so I enjoy—I literally am, am more now enjoying the process of this business becoming and me becoming and understanding that I may not want to buy that, you know, fill in the blank car, house, something like that, because 
I enjoy the idea of it maybe more than I actually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of chasing it more than it. And so, um, you know, my wife hadn't quite bought into that uh, <laughs> yet, but I'm, I'm still uh, still trying to talk her into it. But the point being is like you, you've everybody's heard this, and you know, the end of Shoe Dogs, one of the best, uh, one of the it says it one of the best ways is that you know here's Phil Knight, he's gone through his whole career, this like unbelievable run. And he's like sitting on top, Nike. Like uh, you, you couldn't have written a more uh, a better story. And he's like, I would trade it all today to go back and do it all over again. And if like if that guy is sitting there and saying, I would go back and do it all over again. I, I would trade it all, everything I've got right now to go do it again. And I'm I'm him, and I'm doing it right now. I need to appreciate where I am because one day I'll be in that position and be like. Oh man, dude, and dude kind of said it at the beginning of this. Wasn't it, wasn't it fun when you were when you landed a client and then in your mind that client was going to pay you a hundred dollars a month? And that was just like, and that like literally moved the needle. And now it's, you know, five clients may fire us. It's probably firing us right now. And it doesn't, it's, so it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's enjoying the journey, I think, is where I've kind of arrived. And and also being willing to take breaks. I, I take a two-hour lunch every day. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of instituted some things that I know make me healthy. But I think healthy for everybody is a little bit different. I heard somebody say that complaining is an attempt to it's, – it's the ego's attempt to separate us from what's happening as opposed to owning, I chose to be here. This is volitional. I can't go to my wife and say, well, babe, got to pay the bills. I got to, you know, you want to eat? Kids need X, Y, Z. That's delusional. I can't say that anymore. I could for a time. And that felt good. That, there was some pureness in that that phase of life where I had to do this by any means necessary. Now, embracing the chase, it's the only rational and honest thing to do. When I think about the intersection of that with bootstrapping and stepping back from property management a bit. I think about secondary markets. I think about stamina and the role that that plays for founders. There are plenty of folks that get off the train early, not because of lack of conviction, but because they were just exhausted with holding the cognitive dissonance of, on the one hand, on paper, I'm a millionaire. On the other hand, my wife is like asking me to confirm that the school tuition bill is not going to bounce. When you guys think about the role of stamina and the possibility that secondary markets could provide by providing incremental liquidity along the way, what are your thoughts there on the on the need and the the impact on that for entrepreneurs? Well, there's no uh, it's no secret that this is a hard business. I, I, I you know it is it is a business that is built on problems and um, and and so there's no secret that it's, that. Uh, people burn out very easily. And so, um, you know, one of the things I, I, I'm probably not going to answer your question here to much like the last one that you didn't like my answer, but um, you know, one of the things to the challenges we have is uh, you know, as entrepreneurs, as, as our spouses, um, you know, we we're asking them to go on the ride with us and they don't fully understand the ride. And it's not, fully fair to them because we get home, we're tired. We're asking them not only to sacrifice, um, on, on, from a, from a money standpoint, but a time with us standpoint on the hope that one day this thing pays off. Mm -hmm. And so I've thought a lot about that recently. And it's like, you know, what is the incremental, you know, like brain damage of, you know, going for two more percent or whatever versus just saying, Hey, you know, like enough is enough and I'm going to still enjoy the journey and be a part of the journey, but then also provide some liquidity. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know that secondary market, as far as I know, does, doesn't exist out there for in the, in the micro. I know it at our size, it's starting to mm-hmm, present mm-hmm, itself mm-hmm. and um, it's very interesting to us, right? Like what can, you know, what's the reward and rewards probably a bad word. What's the reward for our family for, this 10 or so years and Duke probably can, I mean, he's kind of experienced a little bit of a liquidity event already. Um, and you know, what's the reward for our family for sacrificing for this long and for the children. And, and, you know, that's just frankly why 
the third generation always has struggles is because, you know, my kids see me on the road, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, Mm -hmm. for the next three weeks, I'm going to be gone from my kids and see them five days in three weeks. And so they know how hard I'm working, but their kids will never know how hard I worked. And so, you know, uh, as I think, think about it, you know, I, I really pivoted subjects there, but to your point, you know, monetize, being able to monetize a little bit of this uh, will be uh, very beneficial. Let's relate that back to what it's like to keep the spirit alive in your own companies. Those early people that are with you, how many people do you have that were day one-ish that were there in the first couple of years? Um, like, so for us, like I would look, I remember like the original, like 15 people. And I'd say um, like six of the 15 are, are now, you know, now with Evernest, but are still there. Um, and, but, you know, it's a, that's a constant challenge is you, you need the soul that we talked about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Like for us, that's like Tim and Angela and Chris McCracken. They're all still, now they're all, you know, part of Everdust. Like, it's great to have those. And you've got Curran and Spencer and Gray and like uh, Duncan and all these guys like been there for a long time since I've known you. Um, and so it's really great to have all those folks along for the ride, um, especially now, right? Like when you do these mergers and acquisitions, you see people, you can point to Gray and Kern and like, look, look, look how their careers have advanced because they dug in and bought in. So that part's really cool. But you also have challenges like when not all of those 15 could survive the mm-hmm. ride. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to hit a, you know, Peter Principal situation. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to get hired over and resent it. Uh, they're going to, they're going to not love that they don't have as much personal time with you anymore and, and all of that. And so that, you know, natural attrition, but it, it, it is really cool to have some of those folks along, you know, for the ride. I, I love that. That was like mm-hmm. a great textbook, like all the different things that break down <laughs> and cause people to leave. Yeah. It is interesting that as you scale and the sexier, the op is you leverage it. You're pulling in a higher tier of talent, which is exciting. At the same time, you're also selling a product that's really different than what those first people got. Mm-hmm. And that was really purifying. Those first people weren't given some sexy op, but they showed up and they leaned in. How do you think about the tension between selling an exciting opportunity for these new folks while still making sure that you're bringing on folks that have that same ethos of what would you call it? I mean, grit really is the word that comes to mind for me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I know the answer to that question. Um, you know, to me, what the early people had to buy into is the vision that didn't wasn't tangible. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to see the vision now. You just look at the graph, the chart, and you say, "Hey, you want to get a ride on this rocket ship?" I mean, it, it, seriously, I, we actually, again, going back to the meeting this week, we pulled up our doors under management graph that's on our data warehouse and it was very clear that something special is happening here. Um, so, but, but again, you know, it's, I, I think that, I think that, you know, it, it's so incredible that you get the right people from a culture standpoint. And maybe this is what you're, like the whole, we, we, one of our core values is embrace the grind. And so we really think about people when we're interviewing them and interviews are way different now, right? Like, Interviews are like rendezvous in random cities to meet with people with five people. It's just really weird. Like it's like a completely different business. But the point is you're always looking at them through the lens of will they take on the soul and carry the soul of what we're doing here? And if the answer is yes, then it's like, you know, they're, you know, because they're in the position, you wouldn't be talking to them if they weren't smart enough to do that. And so we're constantly trying to say, you know, how do we make sure we don't screw up that soul? I want to end talking and highlighting mentorship. Can you guys both give me the name of, of one person who was a significant mentor that really meant a lot, that moved the needle, that modeled and gave you permission for something that you weren't quite sure you could do? I know mine. So my first one I would say is a guy comes a guy named Sean Boyer in Richmond. He started a company called Snag a Job. He grew it from zero to about 250 people and then brought on VC money. Now he's off doing a new startup. So he's probably maybe eight years older than me. He started coming about eight years before me. And he was a local, like a, you know, CEO celebrity, founder celebrity in, in Richmond. Um, and I heard him speak and I just like latched on to him. And I'm like, that's, you know, like, you know, you're, you don't really like, you're not gonna be exactly like someone, but he's, he was mm-hmm. the closest thing to like who I wanted to be when I grew up in a way. So I just bothered him until he, um, 
let me become his mentee. <laughs> and I had sent the letters and emails and like, it was kind of creepy, but I did it. And, uh, and so like we went to lunch a few times and like, he was the guy for maybe my first seven, eight years in the business I would go to for those kind of like big challenges that no one else could help me figure out. Mm. And so he was the guy that I would go to and, you know, he would never answer the question. He would just help me th- think about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. This is how you should think about it. And ultimately you have to make the decision as you know that, right? No one's going to make that those big decisions for you as a founder or CEO, but he was the, he, he was the guy. Mentor, not a consultant, right? Right. Yeah. They shouldn't be telling you what to do at low level. Yep. How about you? So I've had some business coaches over the years, and they've uh, obviously added a ton of value. What I would say is, uh, keep hate to keep coming back to this, but uh, again, making friends with the eminent dead. I am, uh, you know, I consider people like Charlie Munger, Sam Walton, Ray Dalio. Um, you know, um, you know, Steve Jobs. Like, if you read those books over and over and over again, uh, the the what is the book? Um, Think and Grow Rich, like Napoleon Hill. Mm. You know, in his mind, he created this board of directors <laughs> that were like these people. These these people that a lot of them were already dead. But like, what would they say to the to this answer or to answer this question? And I, you know, yes, I have had people, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't point to any one person. And to the point where, like in our corporate office, we've designed it. We haven't had time to actually put these up, but you know, we're gonna have like a wall of wizards in our corporate office that are all the books, the people that have written books that have created value at Evernest. And the whole idea is that, you know, be able to take people there and say, you know, these are the things that, these are the principles that we learn from people like Charlie Munger or Sam Walton. And so that, that's, that to me is kind of like my personal board of directors is reading and reading these people enough to where I feel like I know them. And I feel like, you know, when, when a problem arises, I look at it through, you know, the middle model of Charlie Munger, or I look at it through the middle model of uh, Buffett. You just like or, whisper to Ray Dalio in the corner and he yeah, talks back to you. When, <laughs> in a weird way, yes. Yeah, uh, and yeah. if anybody's ever read Napoleon Hill's Thinking Grow Rich, it doesn't sound too crazy mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because that's basically what he did. Yeah. I had to get told to read that book about 30 times before I did. Yeah. But I get it, you know? I yeah. get the I'm glad I read that book as a young person because it, it changes how you look at the world mm-hmm. as a young person for sure. A pantheon of busts. That's what we're going to have in the office here. Yeah, mine are well, rappers. Like I have rap quotes, lyrics all over my walls <laughs> in my office, and like yeah. portraits of rappers and stuff because they're kind of like my heroes too. And he, like he, the artist that did those, he he reached out to him trying to get like pictures of like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and Ray Dalio. <laughs> hey, it didn't go over as well. It wasn't. It wasn't quite as cool. That wouldn't be one on the front of his website. He reached out to the guy, and the guy didn't respond. And I found out later because he was in jail. <laughs> <laughs> True story. I love it. I love the learning literacy culture. I love how empowering and democratizing that is. It doesn't have to be you telling people what to do. It can be like, hey, I'm learning from this guy. You could too. Regardless of who you're learning from, what I'm upholding is learning and betterment. And if that doesn't turn you on, if there's nothing in for that, probably not a good fit, at least Mm -hmm. for me and my company, for folks that are not growth minded, like Mm -hmm. it's cool, but not a good fit. Well, things are changing so fast. If you don't develop the ability to learn quickly, you know, you can't like even even boutique property management is not the same as it was. No five years ago. And so if you don't develop that learning mindset, then you're, you're going to get left behind. My last question for you guys is somewhat technical, a little lower to the ground, specifically around the tension between revenue optimization and landlord tenant legislation. This wave of, of the very obvious opportunity to improve the unit economics of the business, charging more, RTMs, cost reduction, it produces profit. No shocker. And I'm, I'm excited about that. I've, to some degree, helped facilitate that. I think it's amazing. However, on a long enough time horizon, we do have to be aware of the dynamics of the increasing and foment anti-landlord sentiment. How do you guys think about that tension, the tension between those two opportunities and what may happen over the next couple of years here? I think it's probably going to get worse. Uh, well, worse is probably a bad word, but uh, you know, it, it's going to get more and more uh, tenant friendly and there's going to, they're going to cut down the ways that uh, people can do that. And so I think, uh, look, you know, our business is built kind of in middle America where there is the ability to do more of that. 
And I see, but I see a future that as it makes its waves from California and Oregon mm-hmm. and Washington and the Northeast, you know, it's going to bleed into parts of middle America. It's already bleeding into places like, um, like Austin and Detroit and Chicago. Um, and so, you know, again, you, you, this is, this gets back to being um, very flexible and, and consistently learning, you know, how are we going to continue to make money, you know, to some degree, you charge that so that you can make a healthy profit so that you can afford to provide the service. And so I think that gets a little bit lost um, on the, on the coast where, where they're, you know, cracking down a lot of this, you know, people can't afford to give a a first class service. You know, you've got to hire first class people to give first class service and you need to be able to afford that. And, and this is also a tough business that you need to make money being in this business. And so, you know, the, the friction is going to be, I don't know, I don't know that we can stop it from, you know, maybe we can kind of like turn the tide some, but I don't know that we're going to stop it. I do think as that becomes more and more, uh, you know, call it resident friendly, that there's going to be a bigger and bigger need for landlords. So maybe the, our property managers. So maybe, maybe the end, the, the benefit of all this is that as it becomes, um, you know, harder and harder to manage, people are required to switch to a professional property manager and we just managed scale. And, and there's no doubt that scale drives profitability in our business. We always say density equals dollars. Mm. And so as we get deeper and deeper in these markets, it are, the the unit economics are way better. The margins are way better, and it just makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like maybe over time. Well, you know, if you believe that the country is kind of being the one percent, and then the bottom half is getting squeezed and squeezed, like that can't go on forever. And then they, they will need to make some adjustments. And they, obviously, they are. But to his point, like if um, if they shift it from the tenant paying to the landlord paying a little bit each over over time. You know the property managers can still survive, and as to him, what he just said, we're we're still needed. Um, you know, landlords will even if you make it more expensive to be a landlord, you'll still have a lot of landlords. Like that's that that will always be a profitable job. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if they get taxed a little bit more, they can still pay the PM to do the job. Guys, let's call it right here and put it on wax. If twenty five thousand has become an inevitability, what's the new mark? What's well, don't number? say don't say inevitability because we're not there yet, right? Like probability. We're, we're still grinding. Uh, it seems uh, we do see it, and so we set a goal by the end of the decade to get to two hundred fifty thousand homes. Didn't you that, heard it here first, folks. It doesn't sound so crazy, does it? Two hundred fifty thousand. <laughs> wow! If anybody's going to do it, it's you guys. Awesome. Appreciate it. Appreciate you guys coming on. Appreciate you sharing your journey and the give back to the industry. Thank you. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.